I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishnadas shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishnadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd.
I shouldn't have had that second piece of birthday cake. <laughs> Any questions or anything? People at lunch really wanted to know this. Really? You were a former member of Blue Oyster Cult. Um, not exactly. When I was in, when I was in college uh, at Stony Brook State University in New York, out at Stony Brook, Long Island, uh, a friend of mine who was an art major and a wild man, and he got he met these local kids who were I think they were still in high school, uh, and they were trying to be musicians and. He knew that I sang because we played music and everything. So he got us all together and uh, we started playing music together and everything. But they were, they were young and stupid and I was old and stupid and that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> they were kind of just getting into smoke and I was just getting out of it. So we didn't really get along that well. So then uh, my friend John, the artist, had grown up in L.A. with Jackson Brown and his sister, and they were all very close friends. And Jackson came out to visit him, and he was in New York and came out to Stony Brook, and uh, he had just started writing songs. And so he got a gig with at, for one of Andrew Warhol's parties, but he needed a backup band, so he took the guys, the boys with him, into town and they rehearsed and stuff. And I took that as a good moment to kind of lead the band, so to speak. So that was the end of that. I still tease him about it. He stole my band. <laughs> we just we just did a gig together in Hawaii. Me, Jackson, and Joan Baez. Can you imagine that? Anyway. Uh, uh, that was, oh God, when was that? Sometime before Columbus discovered America, I think. <laughs> uh, so then a few years, then I, I left Stony Brook. I, I, every, you know, I quit school every year, and then I came back for a while, and I went back. And it was a great thing. It was called leaving, taking a leave of absence. It was really a leave of presence. <laughs> but uh, so then I, I came back, and... Um, and then I transferred to upstate New York, and I was up there. While I was up there, that's when I heard about Ram Dass, and then I met Ram Dass. Uh, so I started hanging out with him a little bit, and he invited me to come spend the summer on his father's estate up in New Hampshire and, like, be the, the handyman, you know, uh, mow the, the three-hole golf course and stuff like that, you know. So I moved up there. On my way there, I went all the way back down to New York to, to Stony Brook for a Jimi Hendrix concert. And um, after the concert, we were all hanging around backstage, and the manager of the, that, those guys got together, and they became the Soft White Underbelly. That was their name. It was the 60s. <laughs> Very much the 60s. And uh, they had cut a record. Remember records? Yeah. And they cut a record, and the guy who replaced me as the singer couldn't sing in the studio, so 
They asked me to come back and join the band and go on tour. They had a whole record. All I had to do was go cut the vocal parts, and we're going to go out on tour. But I had my two dogs and my cat and all my worldlies in my little car out in the parking lot, and I was leaving after the concert to go spend the summer with Rambas. So I don't know. I think I made the right choice. <laughs> you never know. I could have been dead or I could be here now. <laughs> Let me think about that. So that's, that's about, you know, so I never, I was, I was never in that group of people that became, that was the Blue Oyster Cult. But before that, the, 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 they were called the Soft White Underbelly and then they asked me to come back and I said I couldn't do it. It's extraordinary how important that is to people. It's writers. <laughs> and it's like, it was like four minutes in my life. <laughs> Not you, but I'm like, I, they, I was supposed to do an interview for the Times, the New York Times. So, <laughs> so I went to the Times building and I figured I was going to go inside. And they said, no, wait down here. The writer is going to come down. So the writer came down with a photographer and we went over to Times Square and we sat out in Times Square and he started asking me questions. Almost every question was about the Blue Oyster Cult. And I said to him, what? What is it? Who cares about this shit? And he said, oh, no. no, no. So, so I'm sitting here and he's sitting here and right across the Times Square, there's a, um, what's it called? Marquee. Yeah. A marquee. A marquee. Thank you. A marquee. But it's an electronic marquee. And every 10 seconds, the the announcement changes, right? So I just happened to be looking over it and said something like somebody and somebody. And then I looked and said, Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> and I said, okay, look, look. He turned around and was gone. I made him stand there. <laughs> staring at that marquee for five minutes. That was funny. You know, I would have been long gone, I swear. I couldn't, I, I wouldn't have been able to deal with it. It was, whatever it was, I couldn't deal with it anyway. And it wasn't even anything to deal with. So that's the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But I, I love the way that the, the, the guitar player from Dolores Sokol is a very special musician. Buck Dharma is his name. That's what he called himself. He's a Republican, though. <laughs> I guess we'll have to love everybody. <laughs> the, the manager of the Blue Oyster Cult was Sandy Perlman. Sandy, all these guys, Stony Brook was like Berkeley of, of the East Coast. Drugs and rock and roll, that, that was it. And, uh, all these people were there who became very big in the music business later, very influential. Sandy actually brought The Clash to America and produced their first two records. The Clash was my favorite band for a long time. Harion. Your last chant in the beginning had a lot of emotions in it. Did it? I felt some kind of a pain, it watered my eyes. So I wanted to ask, does Bhakti Yoga brings the emotion out of you? Mm -hmm. 
Bhakti like, Yoga with. Like chanting brings the emotions out in you. And it, it can, it, sure, it can, you can do that. Sure, it can take you through that. The emotions can be, uh, can, it's almost like fuel, can fuel you and help you be, keep your lock, your attention locked in, keep you present. Ultimately, you go beyond the, those kind of emotions to some degree. Because the emotions are very mixed feelings. It's, but eventually you get beyond uh you transcend the personal aspect of emotion. You might have feeling, tremendous feeling, but it's not personalized. Like, in other words, you might feel, you might be feeling compassion for the whole universe, but you wouldn't be sitting there thinking, wow, I'm feeling compassion for the whole universe. It would just be, you'd be filled with this, but that me might not be so much there. Usually when we feel emotion, you know, I'm feeling it. This is what I feel, which is fine. But if you keep practicing, it'll it'll expand. You know, and, and longing is part of the that that's one of the prerequisites. You know, and you can't get in the door without longing because you're not even looking for the door without longing. So there's always some of that in it for me anyway. I'm not one of those people who jump around and. You know, I sit and play this thing. So everybody has their own bhava, their own way of expressing it, their own way of doing it. And that's good. One should get into one's way of doing it. You take the, the practice will, will express itself and reveal itself differently in each person. So it's all good. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I was wondering how you and the rest of the crew that have been so close to Ramdas, how you are with each other as you see him sort of fading a little bit. He's there and then he's not as there. And I know that he's writing his last book or he's written his last book, so he says, on his death. And I just wonder what you, how you guys are doing with it. I don't know if that's too personal of a question, but... Uh, we've been to Maui. At this point, what's too personal? Well, <laughs> beyond that whole issue. We've been to Maui, you know, three times, and each time we go, we think, wow, this is the last time we're going to go, and will we go? And um, and I know how, what I'm doing with that, and I'm just wondering, you guys that are so so close with him, I wonder how you're not, I mean, how you're doing with it. I, I don't know how I'm doing with it. I can tell you what I feel. I don't know how that is. Ramdas and I, every time we go, we get closer. Every time we're there, we, we have, we've had a complicated relationship over the years. And uh, he, we didn't talk to each other for about seven or eight years in the middle of it all, you know. Maybe we saw each other once for dinner or something like that, but that was about it. But then... Uh, and then I started singing at Jiva Mukti, and he had a stroke. And uh, I sent him a tape that we made at the Jiva Mukti, and then I went out and visited him for the first time after the stroke. We had a great, great meeting, and we've been very close since then. Um, it's hard to think about it, you know, to actually go back and really... Uh, I, 
poems in some what twenty one or yeah twenty one. It's a long time. So, uh, but we have a very close, a very deep connection, which you know, it's not about the body. We don't see each other that often, once or twice a year. We don't talk regularly on the phone. You know, we're all on the Maharaji's blanket together. Yeah. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how you relate to Maharaji at this point. Um, I know that everything you're doing, it seems to me, must be a service to him. But do you actually... Uh, Believe offer it to him. <laughs> no, not that way. But you offer it to him, or if there's anything you could share, because I'm working on this whole question of whether I need to surrender to a teacher and serve a teacher in order to progress spiritually. Yeah, surrender is by grace. It is not by personal will. So you have nothing to worry about. Stop thinking about it. Do I offer what I do to Maharaji? If I offered what I do to Maharaji, that would imply that I think I'm doing it. He's made it very clear to me that that's not the case. So I have nothing to offer. I just do what I do. And uh, the rest is his problem. (laughs) What can I do? I do the best I can with my life, and the rest, so, but the, whatever happens is his, is his business. I can't change what's going to happen tomorrow. He can. He can change what happened yesterday. So I don't even think about it. I do the best I can. Every moment, this moment, next moment. You don't surrender. You are surrendered when that grace appears in your life. For that to happen, you know, and it usually happens, you know, we're on a path to that. The path of devotion is the path of surrender, but it's not the path of willful surrender. It's the path of you. Once you've offered your head, you know, there was a beautiful story. I've talked a lot about Dada, his, his devotee in Allahabad. So this other very great saint came to came to uh, Allahabad, Devorah Baba, the one who was 270 years old. And Dada knew, some of the devotees of Devorah Baba used to come to see Maharaji and they knew Dada, so they kept asking Dada to come have darshan of Devorah Baba. And Dada avoided, 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 but finally he couldn't say no, so he went and he stood in the back and he bowed and then he left. <laughs> like that. So he gets home, as soon as he gets home, a car arrives and Maharaji comes in, sits down. He says, so Dada, what you been doing? Dada, Dada didn't say, says, tell me, tell me. Dada says, why should I tell you? You know everything. Yeah, I know, but I want to hear you say it. <laughs> so uh, he said, you went to see Dora Did you take my name? Did you take my name? We know each other for so long. Did you take my name? He would give you, you know, and Dada said, you know, he, he, he didn't speak. Maharaji kept pushing, pushing. Why did you touch his feet? Did you take my name? Did what did you do? Did you do? Did you? Dada said. He said no, I didn't. He said why not? Why not? Why not? 
Donna wouldn't talk. Why not? My heart is, why not? Why not? Why didn't she do it? Why not? Finally, Donna blurts out, I only have one head, and it's already been given. Maharaji pet him on the head and said, not everyone is a fool like you. And <laughs> Tommy uh, was at Donna's house, and long after Maharaji left the body, and I was going to stay there for a while, so he, he led me up the stairs to the room upstairs. He's carrying the key with him, and I'm walking behind him on the steps, and he, he gets up to the top of the step, he puts the key in the lock, and he looks down at me, and he says, oh, Krishna Das, so difficult, so difficult to come up. And as he turns the key, he looks at me with his grin, he says, so easy to go down. <laughs> he is so great. He, one time, he, I, I was probably reverencing him a little too much, you know, for his own comfort. <clears throat> so he said, Krishna Das, uh, I might be a step or two ahead of you, and you might be a step or two ahead of somebody else. He said, but we're all on this side, on this shore. Uh, what's the difference? So. Question? I have one. I, I love this practice, and in the years that I've worked at meditation, it's the one thing that I feel brings me closer. And the journey is beautiful when I chant, and I do the practice, and all of its ugliness is how I do it, and as it gets better. And one of the awarenesses I have here this weekend is that there's a history and a tradition in this place where I have not had the benefit of practicing before. And so I, I first want to honor the energy of this facility and this grounds because my practice is different here. It's deeper, it's more meaningful, and it's definitely touching me in a way that it doesn't when I do the practice at home. And, and from this place, I, my question is a bit, um, do you, I almost don't have the words to, to say. I mean, it's obviously fairly, it's fairly easy to see why it would be so much more meaningful in a spiritual place. And so I'm wondering about the time that you spent in those special places. And, and how it impacted you when you're in a place that you can almost not practice well. It, it, I mean, you, you had an opportunity to be in so many beautiful environments um, through your practice. And I just was wondering if you could share um, maybe some stories or some feelings that you have, um, how it is different in different places. There are places that have... Uh... Where, where great saints have done a lot of sadhana that, uh, or or are associated with great beings spending time there that, that have different atmosphere around them. 
when Maharaji first went to into the jungle where Kenshi now is, he said, there'll be a temple here. He said, I hear the sound here. And that was actually the place of another saint from the early 1900s, Sombari Baba, had a cave there. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to, I don't even think about those things. What can I tell you? It's just round, round. You know. I, I can, if the place is nice, I like it. But if it isn't, I like it. <laughs> what am I going to do? Uh, sometimes you seek out places that aren't so much fun. Like uh, many years ago, the two artists came to visit me here. This is a great story. And uh, Mr. Tuari was suffering from bursitis in his right shoulder. So I had been seeing an acupuncturist down in Chinatown. And uh, so I decided to take Mr. Tuari to the, the acupuncturist. Uh, in the meantime, the acupuncturist had gotten a, uh, had decided he wanted to be more uh, accessible to the rest of Manhattan. So he got a, an office in Midtown Manhattan, which on 42nd Street. <laughs> and this is back in the, in the heyday on 42nd Street. That must have been the uh, mid-80s or the early 80s. So we parked over on 8th Avenue, and we had a walk to 6th Avenue, two very long blocks. And every 10 feet, somebody was coming up to offer us drugs or sex or this or something like that. And I'm walking with this too. And the, we're passing by the porn theaters with all the pictures and everything with these two little Indian people, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, my fucking Lord, I, could, I should have never brought them here. I can't believe this. This is horrible. I ruined everything. So Mrs. Tuari just went to Mr. Tuari. I said, Papa, what did she say? Figuring and said, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> right? That's not what she said. She said, this, is, this place is like heaven. <laughs> and Bob was telling me, I said, what? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, yes, of course. Heaven is the place you go to get the things you want. <laughs> saw the place completely non-judgmentally, right? They just saw it with a clear eye. This is what's available here. This is heaven for those people. There are many heaven worlds, and everybody who wants all kinds of, there's a world for ice cream lovers, <laughs> where they just swim around in ice cream and eat more than they can possibly eat. <laughs> then eventually, they go to the world of diarrhea. <laughs> after, they've got, after they've exhausted their ice cream carnies, fall from that world into the world of diarrhea, which is the result of eating too much ice cream. And then that one's over and they go to the next. So that's what these worlds are like, these heaven worlds and stuff. And the heaven that Christians, so-called Christians, so-called talk about, so-called heaven, it's, uh, it's not eternal. Nothing's eternal. But the quality of the state of mind that you're in, in that world, is that it feels eternal. Like, my heaven is depression. 
That feels eternal. When I'm depressed. Doesn't you feel like when you're really depressed? You're never going to get out of it, right? That's welcome to heaven. Of course, hell is also eternal. And that's closer to that side of it. Eternal damnation. When you're in it, it's eternal. And that's why it's so bad, because the feeling is really bad. And you're never going to get out of there because you don't have this kind of, you know, left, left-wing left liberal Jewish, uh, you know, understanding of things. <laughs> yeah, I'm cool. I got it all together. No, you're in fucking hell. Yeah. It's always going to be like this. But it isn't. When those karmas have, are burnt away, you, you leave that world and enter another one. That's what they say. I don't have any personal experience. That's my disclaimer. Um, but that's what they say, and a lot of them say that. And right in our own lives, we, we go through all these different states of mind in the course of a day, in the course of a minute or an hour, right? You, know, you wake up, you're feeling good, and then all of a sudden, things turn to shit. <laughs> And you don't know what's going on, and you're walking around. And then somebody calls you on the phone and asks you for a date. Huh? Hello, we're back. And it turns out he has four legs and two arms and eight eyes. And, you know, jumps around in the grass. So that didn't work out. It's from one state to the next. That's what it is. And then just because we leave a body doesn't mean the states stop. We just don't have any place to come back to so easily. So those states are more subtle, they say, but they just like just like what we go through in a day. Uh, some of the places up in the mountains, I, I've been in places in India that are just so sublime. And you want to stay there forever, it feels so good. But the, if, if it had been karmically possible for me to stay there, I would. But if I would stay in these places, my mind would be suppressed and not so busy. And I would think that I was enlightened. But there would be all the shadows that are still suppressed that have to come out sooner or later. So Maharaji doesn't let me let that happen. That's not what he does. He gives you little hits and then he drop kicks you back into the world. And because um, what's the sense? Otherwise, it's just like taking drugs, you know, or watching TV. It's escape from reality. It might be a little blissful. It might feel okay, but you can't maintain it. And the only way to maintain it would be to get a gun and make sure nobody ever comes near you. <laughs> and that doesn't seem like a very compassionate way of doing it. So that's the thing, you know. We, that's why the chanting practice is so deep and so uh, fantastic. You just do it. Add it to your life. And shut up. <laughs> Live. Stop thinking about it. Sit there a few minutes a day, and then every time you remember it during the day, that's good. Don't become a professional seeker. That's nothing more stupid than being a professional seeker. Then you get caught up in all that stuff. Be happy, live your life, go after shit, but watch TV. Do, have fun. Try. Ah, ah, ah. There's, that's I, there's the rub. You can't, because there's always that, uh, that 
unhappiness that won't go away. So that's why we do practice. To clean the mirror of our hearts. That this world, everything we see, think, and feel is a mirror. And when you look in the mirror and if there's all kinds of dust and stuff on it, what you see is the dust and stuff. You don't see who's looking in the mirror. So when you look out at the world, you think you're seeing what's there. But you're, you'll remember you're looking in the mirror, so you're only seeing your dust and your stuff. If you want to see yourself, you have to clean the mirror. That's all. It's very simple. That's why the Hanuman Chalisa, the first line, to clean the mirror of my heart, the mirror of my mind. I take the dust from the lotus feet of the Guru, which is consciousness, which is awareness, which is pure love. And with that, I clean the mirror of my heart so that what we see is who we really are. Not who are, not what we're projecting, not what our programs dictate that we see. So there are places that are more conducive to blissful states, just like there are more places, places that are conducive to more painful states. Some people are attracted to one, some people are attracted to the other, according to their karmic makeup. I can still see Ma saying, like heaven. <laughs> yeah, I, so you see, you can see my judgmental mind, right? Going walking down 42nd Street. And when they walked down, they didn't see it that way. There was nothing bad there. It was just a place where you go to get what you want. Tori, Mr. Tori was always doing that to me. He would tell me something, you know, he'd tell me the truth, always, the real truth. And he would see, like, within a minute of, that I didn't understand a word he said. And he would look at me and go, my boy, is there something wrong with your brain? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, anybody else? In talking to a number of people, there's a lot of conversation that I've had recently about um, sound meditation and moving meditation and silent meditation. And many people have opinions about which is the best or which is the most accessible. It's great when meditators argue. <laughs> Delightful. It's like a comedy show. It's, it's always been a, a very gracious argument. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about your opinion. My gracious meditation is better than your gracious meditation. <laughs> the one you do is the best. That's period. Next. The one you do is the best. The chant you chant is the best. The mantra you use is the best. The one you don't use, probably not the best. <laughs> you know, it's hard enough to get through the day. You know, you don't have to have or even try to find 
the best meditation when you can't count from one to two without losing attention. <laughs> right? Let's get real here. You can't count from one to ten without lo losing your attention. It's not possible. You'll be a million places before you get to three. So what, what the fuck do you need the highest tantric meditation for when you can't count to three? You know? Can we just get real? Come on. <laughs> it's ridiculous, you know? This is not like, we're not supposed to be shining cars here. We're supposed to be getting real. Oh, no, I'm going to. I'm going to, I have the highest tantric initiations here. Shining yourself up, you know? Great. <laughs> Mr. Tuari had all those initiations. He had the visions and the darshan of all the deities and all the higher planes of consciousness. And he would get up at three in the morning and go pee and come back and sit and go bong and be in Samadhi for four or five hours before tea, he would wake up and I would turn over and roll over and go to sleep on my other side. <laughs> Not once in 30 years did he ever say, uh, do you think you could, would you like to meditate? He never, he didn't want me to be anything other than I am. He never said, you know, what do you, would you like to meditate? No, he, just, he got up, I went back to sleep, that was it. He, you can't be who you're not, you know. You'd like to be, we'd all like to be something else, but unfortunately, we're stuck with what we got for the moment. <laughs> don't think I don't say, Jesus, if I had only said, Baba, teach me this, right? I could have learned so much stuff. We could have charged three times what we charged. <laughs> <laughs> I would have so much to give you. So many teachings and practices and techniques. It'd be ridiculous. Yeah. Well, stop. But unfortunately, I am who I am, so I just got more sleep, which I still do the same thing today. 